Greetings and salutations, everyone. This is Volts for December 14th, 2022. Induction stoves with batteries built in and why they matter. I am your host, David Roberts. In the last few months, two separate fledgling companies, Impulse and Channing Street Copper, have announced the upcoming release of a new product, an induction stove with a lithium-ion battery built in. This might not seem like a big deal, but it is actually a peek into a whole new world of possibilities. Embedding batteries into appliances opens up all kinds of intriguing opportunities. A stove with a battery can deliver more power at the point of cooking. It can continue working when the power grid goes out in a blackout or brownout. It can serve as distributed storage to assist in grid stability. To explore the new world of battery-enabled appliances, I contacted two experts. First, Sam Kalish works at Other Lab with previous Volts guest Saul Griffith. Kalish helped start Rewiring America, a nonprofit focused on electrification, and most recently co-founded Channing Street Copper Company. Its first product is a stove with a battery. For now, there's a wait list, and they're only selling in the Bay Area. My second guest is Wyatt Merrill, who works at the Department of Energy's Buildings Technologies Office, where he manages programs related to building electrification. He was instrumental in helping Other Lab secure some funding from DOE to help launch Channing Street. I am excited to talk to them about the merits of embedding batteries in stoves, the things battery-enabled stoves allow consumers to do, and the future grid benefits that battery-enabled appliances could yield. All right, with no further ado, uh, Sam Kalish and Wyatt Merrill, welcome to Volts. Thank you guys so much for coming. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Long time, first time. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, Sam, I want to start with you putting aside the stove for a moment. Take us back to, you know, your work. Uh, you've been doing work with um, Other Lab. You've been doing work with uh, Rewiring America. You're big into the whole electrification of America thing. You're very immersed in that whole uh, business. Tell us how all that work led to this idea and this proposal. Great question. So, as you say, I've been spending the last few years really going deep on electrification, both from a technology perspective, which is the majority of my background, but also uh, from a policy perspective and worked really hard on a lot of the stuff that went into the Inflation Reduction Act. And so, you know, about two years ago, my friend Saul Griffith and I, uh, we were working on this book called Electrify uh, together with our friend Laura Frazier. Um, and we were doing a bunch of data analysis for it, looking at trends in, you know, cost of the technologies related to electrification. And, you know, the thesis of that book is that we kind of have all the technology we need today and we just need to deploy it. And, David, you've done a really good job getting this idea out there. I, I think you said electrification is the main course, um, <laughs> right. which, which I, I really enjoy. <laughs> and so it's mostly true that we have what we need today. We just need to deploy it. But there's certainly technology developments that we can do that will make it faster, better, cheaper. Right. And one of the trends that we were really disturbed about was you know, all these, all these costs were coming down. Like, you know, if you read Bloomberg New Energy Finance, you see, you know, battery prices approaching $100 mm -hmm. a kilowatt hour, all of this. But if you actually looked at what it cost to install those, to put them on your house or something, um, those prices weren't coming down. And it was mirroring a very familiar story from residential solar, where now the hardware cost of residential solar is really cheap. It's, you know, something like 26 cents a watt for the yeah. actual hardware, but it's, you know, closer to $3 a watt to put it on your house. And we were seeing the same thing happen with batteries. And, you know, to do what we needed to do, those trends couldn't continue. And so we, we started thinking about ways to get around that. And this idea emerged, what, what we now call energy storage equipped appliances or ESE, mm -hmm. or if you're feeling cheeky, maybe easy appliances, <laughs> where... <laughs> You can put a battery into an appliance in a factory, 
instead of putting a battery on your house. And by doing that, you can do it really cheaply and really safely. When you put it on your house in a sort of a bespoke way, you need to have, you know, a site plan, you need to get a permit, you need to have someone come out and do custom electrical work, you have to get it inspected. All these things just add tons and tons of cost. Uh, so we said, well, what if, what if instead of doing that, we allow batteries to be installed in appliances in a factory at the cheapest possible cost? And then they kind of, they come into your house, kind of like a Trojan horse <laughs> inside of the appliance. And all of a sudden you have this battery backup, this ability to use more renewables to power your life, this ability to make it easier to electrify. Um, and you didn't have to do all that custom expensive work. Right. And so this led to, um, I mean, you, you submitted a proposal to the DOE, right? That's right. So we, we kind of wrote this idea up. And fortunately, we found, um, you know, our proposal found its way to Wyatt and some other folks who thought there was some potential inside of it and, uh, and recommended it for award. That's a good handoff to Wyatt. So Wyatt, tell us what you're doing at DOE, kind of what your team is doing and how you found this and why it, why it grabbed you. Sure. Um, I'll start with kind of broadly my role and, and the role of the team that I'm part of. I'm in the Building Technologies office. I'm part of the Emerging Technologies program in the office. And that office is one of uh, a number of tech offices that comprises uh, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, or EERE, mm -hmm. uh, under DOE. So it's uh, you know, org charts on, on org charts. <laughs> but, um, uh, so just to give you an idea of kind of where the project lives in, in DOE, so broadly, what I work on is, is R&D across a lot of different technologies. This is one project out of you know, dozens that I manage. These are all related to building technology, though. Yes, all related to building technologies. And in particular, uh, our emerging technologies program is focused on research and development and sort of pre-competitive next generation mm. type technologies. So we're, we're always doing like road mapping and analysis for uh, what's coming next uh, to save energy or to make electrification more viable. And, and this particular proposal came as part of uh, our benefit FOA in 2020. Well, it was the benefit 2020. Uh, I think it was officially on the street in 2021. But and that was a, a pretty broad funding call for a lot of different technology areas. You know, we, we funded everything from heat pumps to uh, lighting projects and uh, windows and, and envelope. And there was one topic that um, I was uh, in charge of for that FOA. Tell everybody what a FOA is. Uh, sorry, a funding opportunity announcement. So there was one topic that was part of that funding opportunity that was a little bit more on the open-ended side, mm -hmm. but I really wanted to think hard about certain problems that consumers face when they want to electrify. And one of those things was uh, panel capacity and, and being able to make the upgrades that you might want to make without having to go through the expensive and often you know time-consuming process of upgrading your panel at a minimum and sometimes even having to run, you know, new service and trench new lines out to homes. And that, that can be a major constraint for certain people. Mm -hmm. And so I was really looking for creative ways to kind of sidestep this problem, you know, putting aside questions around like national electric code and, and other kind of bureaucratic constraints. I was really interested in like, what are some of the technology solutions out there that, that might make it easier for people to electrify? And uh, when this proposal came across uh, my desk, it was really exciting to me as not just because you can, yes, you can get batteries into the home for the purpose of, you know, as Sam said, load shifting and, and you know, aligning your demand with renewable uh, supply, you know, that's certainly an application. But the big thing that actually I don't think Sam has mentioned yet is you can plug this into a 120 volt outlet, which is for many people, uh, a, a big savings on not having to run, you know, have an electrician come in and run new uh, circuits into the kitchen and potentially can avoid uh, those panel upgrades. Had you heard of or thought of uh, sort of embedded batteries uh, or what was it, ESE, easy appliances? Had you thought of that before you saw the proposal? Because this is one of those things which like when I first saw it, I was like, oh, well, Duh, <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I didn't think of it until I saw it. Had you heard of it before you saw the proposal? So I hadn't heard of it specifically in terms of, you know, we should put a battery in an induction stove, right? but there have been some ongoing discussions and they continue to, we, we continue to have ongoing discussions around sort of what does the future of, of home energy storage look like? And a lot of the focus has been on 
thermal energy storage. And to the extent that we've talked about batteries, it's usually been, you know, those larger uh, stationary batteries. But there's been more and more discussion around, well, what if, you know, what if we thought a little differently about this? What if there was a battery, you know, in, in an appliance or in an outlet even? Or, you know, how do we take advantage of devices that already have batteries, even like battery backup systems in like emergency lighting? You know, in principle, you could load shift with those if you wanted to. Right. And so there's obviously there's a, a lot that goes into that beyond just the technology, the innovation, um, you know, protocols and interoperability standards and, uh, you know, code. But in principle, there's, I think, a lot of different ways that you could imagine energy storage taking root in buildings. And so I don't want to say that we thought that this was definitely going to take off. It's been super successful just in the couple of years that we've had the project going, in, in my estimation. But I think it's one of a number of ways that we're thinking kind of more creatively about batteries. Of course, the other thing is, right, if you have one in your garage, how do we take advantage of that with a bidirectional mm-hmm. charger, right? So there's there's all these different kind of scales and opportunities, I think, for battery storage that we need to kind of think more creatively about, in my opinion. Yeah. And one other thing about the DOE program, is it public education a piece of what you do at all? Or are you just like purely immersed in the tech? Because I, I, I just wonder, because currently I think it's like, five percent of americans have induction stoves or or something like that ten percent so they're unfamiliar to a lot of people is that part of your job or is that somebody else's somebody else's problem (laughs) it's not a major part of what i work on i'm mostly focused on the on the r&d um but it's absolutely part of the broader effort that, that we have at the buildings office and across eere and we have partnerships with businesses through through better buildings and with uh, states and and local governments to to try to get some of that messaging out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there are programs that are more focused. You know, I, I mentioned I was in emerging technologies. We have other programs that are focused more on deployment and workforce mm-hmm. development and education for sure. Let's talk about the stove. Let's get into the stove. Awesome. First of all. I know what an induction stove looks like, and I think probably most people do. It just looks like a stove. Where Where is the battery <laughs> in the stove? <laughs> well, it's funny you say you know what induction stoves look like. Um, a lot of coverage of induction stove often uses incorrect pictures. It uses pictures of radiant stoves because oh, they they actually glow and are sort of more interesting to look at. But induction stoves are just invisible magic. Dude, I think induction stoves are – I think they're beautiful. They're like all the sleek – smooth surfaces like i i love induction absolutely love and then you take them apart and they're even more beautiful inside <laughs> and, you, and you, you paint them yellow have you seen the stove at other lab oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yes. so we we've got our, our demo unit that we take to farmers markets to you know we cook people grilled cheese and talk to them about induction um this is this is our version <laughs> of the public education campaign um yeah it's, it's painted bright yellow and blue and uh, you can wheel it around the park and uh people kind of look at you funny and that that's the goal that's funny <laughs> But like, where is the battery in the stove? Is it is it near the surface? Is it in the back somewhere? I want to get a physical sense of what's going on. Our battery goes down at the bottom. It's kind of where there's a lower drawer underneath your oven. Right. That's the space that we, we use for a battery. And how big is it? Like, can I see the battery if I own the stove or is it embedded somewhere where sort of out of the way? You could definitely see it. Um, I don't think I'll recommend that people go and mess with their batteries for, for their <laughs> copper stoves, but uh, you know, it's it's we're not hiding anything. It's it's right there down at the bottom. Bigger than a shoebox? Uh, how big is how big is the battery physically? Yeah, yeah. So most of the plan form, like most of the footprint of the stove, and maybe you know, like four or five inches thick slab. Got it. So pretty big, and I would imagine fairly heavy too. Yeah, so that's one reason to put it down low. Um, and also to make it kind of a modular component so you can take it off if you need to move the stove around, et cetera. And it's really important to know these are sealed packs. Um, they've got a you know robust metal casing around them. So they're not, you know, this is about water ingress. This is about making sure they're temperature controlled. But critically, these are lithium iron phosphate packs, right. uh, which are different than the lithium ion chemistries that are in a lot of laptops and cell phones that, you know, when we think of lithium battery and you, you have the vision of fire, that's lithium <laughs> ion. <laughs> lithium iron phosphate is an inherently safe chemistry. It doesn't have thermal runaway. It's a, also an inherently long-lived chemistry. Um, yes. You get much, much more uh, cycles out of it. So 
um, you know, the kind of derating that you experience with your phone is, is not a feature of lithium iron phosphate. We just had a pod on this uh, on Volts a, a mere few days ago. So all our loyal listeners are completely up to date on this on LFP batteries. So, you know, they're longer lasting. They have a longer charge cycle. They can charge more times. So they don't have thermal runaway. They don't catch on fire. Their only really disadvantage, if you call it that, is that they don't have the energy density of familiar lithium-ion chemistries. But in most applications, they have enough energy density. Two separate questions. One is, how powerful is it vis-a-vis cooking, right? Like, what does it do for your cooking that you can't get out of a non-battery stove? And then secondarily, is it big or powerful enough to meaningfully play a role in like if your power goes out and you need some electricity to you know run your lights or whatever like is there enough does it store enough power to be a meaningful part of kind of a larger whole house backup system yeah yeah so this battery is about four kilowatt hours in our um a flagship product. Um, you could think of that as about a third of a Tesla Powerwall. Mm. Um, and so it is meaningful with respect to your whole home's energy use. Say the power goes out and you have no access to power, you'll be able to run your fridge for about four days. Modern fridges tend to do about a kilowatt hour a day. And, you know, depending on how grandiose your meals are during that blackout, you can cook, you know, sort of meals for that same amount of time. But the really interesting thing about the battery, or this is actually an interesting thing about our cooking habits generally. So we've taken a lot of data about cooking. You know, you put power meters all over the stove and you measure how much power goes to the burners and to the oven. Mm. And, you know, you get to cook nice meals for the engineering team in this, you know, at the same time. <laughs> And on average, for sort of like windows of about an hour or so, there's no cooking activities that really draw more than one or two kilowatts. Hmm. And that's, you know, 1,500 kilowatts is what you can get from the 110-volt outlet that's already in your kitchen. And so on average, the power supplied by that relatively meager outlet can totally run all of your cooking activities. It's just these brief moments when we're bringing the pot to boil or you put the 20-pound bird in the oven or, you know, you, you really want a lot of flashbang, then you're using way more power. And those short moments are the only reason a conventional induction stove has that huge 50-amp, 240-volt outlet. A hilariously familiar story, right? Like this is the whole electricity system in miniature. Absolutely. It's just peaks you're talking about, right? Yeah. Peak shaving. Absolutely. And so what all this data collection shows you is that in, in normal conditions, like not a blackout condition, in normal, you know, relatively normal conditions, it's basically impossible to run out of battery. We put a big one in there to get you through a blackout. But in normal conditions, like there's no sort of range anxiety haha, to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you when uh, we got this proposal in, in that funding opportunity I was talking about earlier, one of the main things that I heard from the external reviewers, because when we go through the process of making selections, it's quite a long process and I won't bore you with the details, mm -hmm. but we do have a round of uh, reviews externally. And some people said, well, what about Thanksgiving dinner? Are people really going to be able to use a stove like this and cook, you know, all these different pots uh, and pans on a turkey in the oven all day long? And uh, I think it was sort of an open question at the time that we made the selection. And then sure enough, this year, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Sam, your team made Thanksgiving dinner on the stove. Is that right? <laughs> we, we did. We did a nice, uh, you know, pre-Thanksgiving meal with the team and um, cooked a bunch of really delicious stuff. And uh, Unplugged, you mean? Because, I mean, of course, you're not going to run out if you're plugged in, right? I mean, well, it's plugged into the 110-volt outlet, the small one. Right. So... Is it the case that you cannot use an induction stove with a 110-volt outlet, period? Or is that a hard rule, or is that like a guideline? A conventional induction range, so we're talking four burners and an oven. There's no way in hell you would plug that into a 110-volt outlet. Uh, that, would, <laughs> that would require 240 volts to your kitchen and either a 40 or 50-amp breaker and all the copper through your wall to support that amount of current. Ah. Especially renters looking to electrify. Like I, I did this for many years. I wanted induction in my kitchen, and so I just bought a, a single burner induction, and those right. you can plug into 110 volts because you know it's only 1,500 watts that you're pulling, and that's okay. 
even though a single burner on a full-size induction range will easily get you up in three or 4,000 watts. And that's just for, you know, that, that flashbang experience of, of why induction is magic. Right. So you've got the battery in the stove that can provide those surges. This brings, <laughs> this brings up a very familiar question, which I'm sure you've heard dozens of times, which is whenever I talk about induction stoves online, in addition to the avalanche of dumb myths about gas stoves yes there's also the question of what about my walk right Mm -hmm. this is the one thing that sort of gas stoves have left (laughs) you know like the induction stove especially once the battery is embedded can deliver more just raw energy now than flame can so all that's left is the walk so just for listeners benefit answer the the walk question Sure. I call these the induction whataboutisms, uh, yes. or you know, more generally the electrification whataboutisms. And one of our kind of guiding principles at Copper is we're going to solve all of the induction whataboutisms, and that includes the walk. <laughs> um, we have some really exciting uh, technology that'll uh, let you use a walk on on our stove, and that's about all I want to say about that right now. But yeah, what? No. Why? Well, at least tell me. <laughs> at least tell me what that looks like. I want to like. I don't get it. I don't get how it could work because it's about, well, there's two things with a walk. One is the curved surface, which is problematic. Mm -hmm. And the other is you need a lot of, you need the really, really high heat to get that particular kind of flavor and and charred thing. So is this an addition to the stove? Is it an extra piece of something? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So this, this will be a, an accessory for the stove that allows you to use sort of a walk of your choice. On that theme, as I was thinking about this, you know, if you have a stove that is effectively boosting the power from your wall, you, it seems like you could design other stuff to plug into the stove, right? And to run off the stove's battery. So it seems like once you start thinking about this, <laughs> there's all sorts of accessories you can imagine plugging in to various parts of the stove to enhance kind of the stove's usefulness. Is that is the wok accessory the only one you've got so far, or is this a, a family of things you're thinking about? It's definitely a family of things we're thinking about. In the vein of plugging things into your stove, in our flagship product, the, the pre-order campaign that we just sold out, there is an auxiliary outlet on it, which allows you to plug any other thing you want to run on the stove's power system. So kind of the primary use case we think of is plugging your fridge in. And what that allows the stove to do is it can run your fridge when the power is out. And then it could also use that additional load of the fridge for, you know, for load shifting, for grid support, for things like that. Just having more loads underneath the battery to uh, to play with. Mm. That's interesting. I guess I was thinking more about like cooking accessories, although I don't know exactly what that would look like, but I'm not a cook. Just like it just occurred to me, like you have all this power available, like you could run other power using devices related to cooking off of this thing or integrate them almost somehow. (laughs) I imagine you don't want to say too much about any of that since it's all in development. Yeah, this is a slightly sensitive area, but uh Basically, what I'll say is we've got some chefs on staff. We're doing some things I'm really excited about here, and we're gonna we're gonna solve all the induction whataboutisms. And you know, this is gonna be a a really great cooking experience. You know, that's from the ground up. Right. And final stove question, which is just how much is it gonna cost off the bat? And I mean, I assume a first in class product is gonna be relatively expensive. So what's the cost and what's the story you kind of tell about the cost? Sure. Just kind of the facts are uh, for our pre-order campaign, these stoves are $6,000. And that may sound like a lot, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of shock, sticker shock. Um, But we got to remember a couple things. One is that because the battery that's built in is larger than three kilowatt hours, it can qualify for the investment tax credit that's in the Inflation Reduction Act. That's a tax credit for home batteries specifically? That's a tax credit for residential battery energy storage systems. Got it. And that's a 30% tax credit. So there's lots of issues with tax credits. They're regressive. It's hard for people to claim them. But, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's 30% off the top when claimed as a tax credit. Then on top of that, 
obviously there's local rebates. So here, you know, in the Bay Area, Bay Ren provides $750 a rebate for an induction stove. And then the other piece that we have to think about is this cost gets you everything. It gets the stove into your house working. If you go to Home Depot and buy an induction stove, you then have to schedule an electrician visit, stay home from work, get them to come over and pay them a significant amount of money to run copper from your breaker box to your kitchen for that new outlet. And, you know, that's assuming you have the impacity in your breaker box. If you're upgrading the breaker box, that's a that's a larger project and you sort of like chain of uh, potential upgrades start kicking in. So when you factor in those costs, in a bunch of cases, this is the cheapest way to get induction. And we're providing all the other sort of energy storage equipped services on top of that, like the ability to run during a blackout, the ability to use renewables, et cetera, et cetera. It's also perhaps worth mentioning, Sam, I don't know how much you want to get into it because I know it's still sort of part of the development process in in this project. But, uh, you know, in principle, if you have time of use rates that you can take advantage of in your area, you could be charging and discharging at certain times, correct? Right. I want to talk about that later, actually. Let's let's bracket that for later. I want to talk about the, the larger sort of grid questions. Just to say it has some bearing on the lifetime cost. Definitely. Just one last mm. thing on pricing. We've talked to a bunch of municipalities who are running low-income housing retrofit programs. Mm. These are cities like City of Oakland, City of Berkeley, City of LA, DC, Chicago, New York. Mm. They're all running large programs. And we we sort of relied on them for some of the data on setting pricing. Uh, especially as it involves, you know, like the cost and complexity of electrical work. And they said, if you can sell a stove for $5,000, that's what we're currently budgeting in our programs for induction stove plus electrical work. So coming in at six in the in the pre-order leaves us room to come down for a large buyer like a municipality to be able to take part in those programs. Right. And then, of course, you, uh, you know, if you're involved in public policy, there's also the sort of health benefits of removing a source of pollution from the home. You know, those those health benefits accrue. They don't they're not reflected in the cost of the stove, but they're they're out there. That's a great point. A lot of us are familiar with the case for childhood asthma and gas stoves. There's been a really strong link established between these two things. More recently, there's a growing body of evidence for the link between gas stoves and adult dementia, oh, which wow. after childhood asthma might be among the most scary things I can think of to have linked to gas stoves. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't take that for granted. You know, I, I assume people listening to Volts are probably aware of this, but just to put it on record, there's a large and growing body of evidence that gas stoves inside your home produce indoor pollution that has all sorts of negative effects. And like any form of air pollution, the more it gets studied, the more effects they find. So there's a, a good reason to get gas stoves out of your home separate from all of these benefits that we're talking about, just, you know, to quit poisoning yourself. So um, you could say there's like two strategies here. One is for every home, just bite the bullet, do the big upgrade of the electrical box, of the electrical power system in general, and then just install a big central battery because you can get all the benefits we're talking about here and more, I think, from a central battery. Like you could, you know, you could run, you can run things when the power's out. You can provide surges of power when you need extra power more than your, uh, your outlet can provide. You can, et cetera, et cetera, down the line, all the benefits you could get from a central battery connected to all the appliances in the home. Or, you know, the alternative strategy, which we're talking about here, is sort of bypass that because um, <laughs> it's a giant hassle <laughs> and expensive. And then just embed batteries all over the place in homes, in appliances, to bypass the need for these upgrades. Does DOE sort of favor one of those over the over the other, or do you favor one of those over the other? Or how should we think about those two strategies? Like, does the funding of this mean that sort of DOE is all in on the latter strategy? Or how do you think about the relationship of those two? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do my best to answer, and you can tell me if I'm avoiding the question. <laughs> we are very much in an ongoing process of developing from the building's perspective, kind of where where we're headed with battery storage. You know, there's been a lot of efforts across DOE, of course, when it comes to the battery cell chemistries, when it comes to electric vehicles, manufacturing processes that I'm not really 
equipped to speak on. And so my answer here is really about batteries in buildings and, and what that looks like in the future. Speaking personally, I'm sort of agnostic as to how batteries get into buildings. I think it's incumbent on us certainly to think about not only technology solutions, but realistic adoption scenarios. And so it's it's not enough to say like, well, you could do this with you know a $12,000 stationary battery in your garage. <laughs> and maybe you could do it even better if you had, you know, a, a DC microgrid and you tore out all the wiring and you did everything, you know, from scratch. But I want to be creative about thinking about sort of serving all types of you know, buildings and geographies and, you know, people in different economic situations. And so that's part of the thought process. The other thing I'll say is that, you know, I think it's sort of an open question still whether or not getting batteries into homes is on its face a decarbonization strategy. So I think it definitely has the potential to be. But when you think about, you know, the entire sort of life cycle of mining lithium and developing the batteries and shipping them around, you really have kind of a hole to dig out of when you're uh, setting these up in a home. And so so my feeling is whether you're talking about a large stationary system or you're talking about some kind of uh, creative integration strategy, like putting it in a stove or, or putting it, you know, you could even imagine it in like a, a modular, you know, wall type construction uh, or outlets or whatever that, you know, we're thinking about operationally how to do the best we can uh, from an emission standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes a, a difficult thing. It seems like that would weigh against, or, uh, you know, not definitively, but at least sort of on the ledger of pros and cons, that would weigh somewhat against multiple batteries, would it not? It seems like you would want from a materials and embedded carbon perspective, you would want to minimize the number of batteries, would you not? The thing that I come back to is that like not all homes need a huge battery in their garage that can island the entire home. In a lot of cases, it's really sufficient to control, you know, one or two or three like peaky loads and make sure that they're not coincident or make sure that those peaks can be, you know, curtailed by a battery. And so oversizing, you know, big batteries for the entire home that ultimately have a pretty large embodied carbon component is not to me always going to be the most uh, effective method for decarbonization, right? But these things are not just about decarbonization. It's about resilience. It's about economic benefits. um, If you want to take advantage of like time of use rates, as we mentioned, and decarbonization. And I think there's some questions that are yet to be answered about how we can align those priorities and, and under which circumstances they are aligned. Right. So Sam, like, how do you think about this? Do you think about this as a stopgap until you can upgrade the electricity in your home? Or do you view it as like a full on different way to go about it, a different strategy? Great question. And and Wyatt roughly just uh, hit a number of the points I was about to make. So that's perfect. Um, <laughs> I This is a, a full on decarbonization strategy. The way we think about this is we're putting the smallest battery we can at the right place to avoid the most amount of infrastructure upgrades we need to do. So that means targeting the peaky loads like we talked about, and that sets off cascading cost reductions. Um, So, you know, I've looked at this at a number of places, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about the cost of running copper from your breaker box to your kitchen. There's the cost of upgrading your electrical panel. There's the cost of upgrading the electrical service into your house. Those costs are large. The last one I mentioned, just the electrical service in, I did a study on that, and it's estimated to electrify the residential stock of the U.S. It's a quarter trillion dollars just to upgrade the incoming electrical service for the homes that will need it if we don't do something. That's just new panels for homes that need it? That's it? Honestly, Dave, that's not even the new panels. That's just the wires coming in. Mm. The wires coming in and the distribution transformers on the street. That's a lot. It's a lot because, you know, anytime you've got underground wires, you got to retrench. Anytime you've got underground wires near natural gas infrastructure, that retrenching is very expensive. Uh, And is there not a shortage of electricians at the moment, too? Just to toss that in there. There's a very large shortage of electricians. You know, electrical contractors would much rather send their workers to larger job sites where they can make a bunch of money. So getting them to roll to your house for your piddly kitchen circuit is going to cost you a cu- couple grand just to get the truck to show up. You know, it's um, so we're in the business of hearing horror stories about this because, you know, we solve this problem for people. So they, they like to tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
David, I think you can get a lot of similar benefits in terms of a stationary large battery versus maybe a coordinated group of smaller batteries. But if it allows somebody to electrify that wouldn't otherwise electrify, to me, that's sort of a categorical difference uh, in terms of the benefit space. And then one other thing I want to say around the alignment between resilience and decarbonization, it's perfectly valid to want a battery in your home for the purpose of resilience and for the purpose of keeping you know the lights on or the fridge running or the stove running during a blackout, especially in places now that have scheduled blackouts and you can count on them like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Um, that's perfectly valid. But I, I guess what I want to understand from, you know, in terms of the DOE's perspective that you asked about earlier is like, if these batteries are sitting idle, you know, the other 99% of the time that you're not in a blackout scenario, what can we do with them to, yeah. to really bring some better alignment between uh, supplies from renewable sources and demand on the other hand? Yes, indeed. So Sam, did you have any, uh, any additions to that or? No, what Wyatt said it beautifully, like roughly we're looking for the biggest benefit for the smallest battery that's being used most of the time. So we don't want our batteries to sit idle and we don't want to put more batteries than we need. Got it. Let's talk about this then. The ability of batteries to be a tool of decarbonization. I think you sort of raised this earlier and I think it's just worth emphasizing. It's not automatic, right? It's just not automatic that if you just throw batteries out to as many places as possible, you're going to get decarbonization. You need you know, you need to do certain things and have certain policies in place. And a big piece of that is having the batteries play some role on the grid, not just in your home helping you cook, but that when you're not cooking and when that battery has some capacity and it's sitting there with power in it and you're not using it, the grid needs to be able to know (laughs) that that power is there and how much of it it can use and right, and be in dialogue with all those batteries. So tell us just sort of like briefly what policies you think need to be in place to get the most decarbonization benefit out of these distributed batteries that we're putting in appliances and everywhere else. So I'll say a couple of things and then I'm going to toss it over to Sam because um, to be honest with you, I, I won't be speculating as to policy needs. But I'm happy to let Sam do it. Um, But I will say that there's kind of two things here in terms of aligning the the choice to install a battery with decarbonization. And the first, as we've already touched on, is just, is that battery giving you the ability to electrify that you might not have otherwise had? So in other words, can you get those direct emissions out of homes? Can you cap gas lines to buildings? And in doing so, you know, right away you've made some impact on the emission picture. And then you have to ask, okay, well, what what type of electricity is going to be charging this battery? Is it coming from wind? Is it coming from solar? So then the operational carbon becomes an hour-to-hour question, and it certainly varies geographically in terms of the grid mix, and it's going to vary temporally over the next 10 years as we scale up uh, you know, renewable supplies to the point where this question would not be so pressing perhaps in 2035 if all goes well. But it's certainly you know, in the transitional period, we want to be mindful. Right. If all the electricity is renewable, a lot of these questions <laughs> will be mooted. Yeah, that's right. But certainly in the uh, between here and there, uh, you know, we need to use them well. So, Sam, I guess you uh, sort of literally wrote the book on this. So maybe you can take a swing at what needs to be in place for my battery and my stove to be a good grid citizen, a good decarbonizer. I'll start by just noting that even without communicating to the grid. Uh, Your energy storage equipped appliance is already helping the grid just by your pattern of use. You arrive home, you cook dinner after the sun has gone down. It's likely that in your area, this is a peak time of use and you're drawing most of your power from the battery at that point. Let me pause you there. Are you, when you just start cooking, does it draw on the battery first? Like, Do you have to tell it to Use battery power rather than grid power, or how does that? How does it decide? There are complex control laws that run inside of it to determine what mixture of power sources it gets from where, and so it's not one or the other really, but kind of your ratios, and and a little bit of it will be user preference. You, as a very climate concerned citizen, could say, pull no power that was generated during a time likely to be you know supported by peaker plants. 
and it could implement that. Or you could say, you know, keep me as resilient as possible at all times, you know, keep the battery as full as possible at all times, Mm. things like this. So a little bit of this is going to be personal preference. You can program that into the stove somehow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the larger point is just that any amount of power sort of absorbed during the day, during the solar window, and, you know, dispensed at night during a peak time is already supporting the grid, even before a lot of the the more complicated back and forth and price signaling and emission signaling, et cetera. Oh, okay. Well, that's our baseline, but what is, say we want to go beyond, go beyond baseline. <laughs> Um, sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of people, and to be honest, there's a lot of people that know more about this than me, but doing daily look-aheads from the grid operators to know what the projected outlooks of generation mix are going to look like, having those signals dispatched as close you know, to just day ahead um, is really kind of the stuff we need to make this work really well. And what about aggregators? Is my stove going to be talking directly to the grid or... Is this mostly going to go through, you know, aggregators just for listeners' benefit? An aggregator is just a, an entity that makes contracts with dozens or hundreds of small distributed energy resources, your batteries in your garage or your stove or your car or whatever, anything, all these little behind-the-meter resources, and coordinates them such that they act like a big energy producer or a big energy storage installation, basically like a, a virtual power plant, it's called. Is that how you see these things working in the future? Uh, these embedded batteries playing a role in in, in uh, aggregations? Yes, absolutely. And so, in that case, uh, we would be the aggregator for these devices. Oh, really? Channing Street is going to get into that biz? Yep. Yep. What's interesting, though, is that one one of the other main reasons we haven't touched on too much here. Uh, is that another reason to put batteries into appliances is you, you then gain access to the much larger market of residential appliances compared to the market of residential energy storage. Mm. And so you don't have to have a large market share of stoves. You can have single digit market share of stoves for five years and you'll have deployed more battery capacity than Tesla has. Interesting. You mean Tesla has four home batteries? For Powerwall, yes. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought of that, but especially if you can get this so standardized that it just becomes sort of like a standard feature and people don't have to do it on purpose. They're just buying appliances that naturally have batteries in them. Exactly. That's a lot of a lot of appliances out there. Yeah, these ESE appliances, I think people will buy them for the amazing performance they give, not necessarily the fact that they have a battery. We didn't touch too much on this, but even outside of stoves, other appliances, there's a lot of really good benefits. Even with stoves, you know, you know that annoying buzz some induction stoves make? Yes. Running from a battery, you can make that silent. What? Why? How? What? <laughs> and, then, and then you get to have, the, you know, the fun conversation that we've now had about EVs, about what sound should, what sound should an induction <laughs> right, stove Right, so you know the stove's on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Hilarious. What makes that noise, P.S., because I'm, everybody out there with an induction stove knows what you're talking about. What makes yeah. it and how do you silence it? So it varies a little bit depending on the model, but in almost all cases, that noise is an artifact of the fact that that stove is being driven with alternating current, with AC power. Mm. So that buzz is the 60 hertz signal that you're hearing making its way all the way through the driving circuitry and into these sort of vibrations of the pan and vibrations of the driving coil, vibrations of the glass. And so when you're running it through a battery, instead, a lot of this is happening uh, in a direct current sense. And that, right. that buzz can be completely eliminated. Interesting. I really I had not heard that bit. I've heard a lot of people complain about that noise. So this is this is highly relevant information. That buzz is terrible. I agree. <laughs> this, this reminds me, uh, I have a separate project, totally unrelated, but looking at interfacing thermoelectrics with uh, various appliances, but dishwashers being one of them. And it turns out if you uh, set up a thermoelectric heat pump in a dishwasher, you can eliminate the, what do you call it, the mist, the fog that comes out when you open the dishwasher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, that, I guess, is a big consumer uh, preference. Yeah. Oh, what? Really? I, I kind of... I like that fog. I enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, like a little, it's like a little face, a little face bath. <laughs> so Wyatt, and maybe Sam too, but Wyatt first, um, what other appliances are next? Like... Batteries are getting small and cheap enough that, in theory, you could just 
stick them anywhere, but like presumably you'd want to prioritize <laughs> somehow. So like, what are the after stoves? What are the next big places where you might want to embed a battery? So when we, whenever we start a project uh, like this one with uh, other lab or Channing copper, we sit down and we come up with uh, different stage gates um, that we're going to work on throughout the course of the project. And one of the first ones in that, in that operating plan was to answer the question that you're asking, which is like, which appliances are going to benefit the most from this? And I know we looked at water heaters, we looked at refrigerators, we looked, I think, at dryers as well. I actually do have some of the results in front of me, but I don't want to steal uh, the thunder of the person who actually did the analysis. So, Sam, do you want to speak to that? <laughs> uh, sure. Um, yeah, so in a lot of cases, the same value proposition can be captured, the avoiding the 240-volt outlet for things that already run on gas. So dryers, good example. You know, Gas dryers are common. Gas water heaters are common. Both of these, there's a strong value proposition for avoiding that electrical work. In the case of water heaters, we're already seeing some 120-volt uh, heat pump water heaters hitting the market. Um, Reams Proterra unit is an example. It got, mm -hmm. it got some buzz earlier this year when it came out. And th this is really exciting, but it's, it's important to note that that water heater is not a solution for all climates and all households. It's a warm climate, small household uh, solution. And so there's still a huge unmet need in terms of 120-volt uh, water heaters. And so there's uh, a bunch of room there. So a battery embedded heat pump water heater. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And so the ability to deploy this amazing cost saving heat pump technology, you know, without having to rewire your house is, you know, the value proposition is strong. The other one I will mention is replacing on-demand gas water heaters. Mm. If I walk around my neighborhood it's like every house less than a thousand square feet has a gas on-demand water heater on the outside of their building. Those homes don't really have a viable electrification pathway right now. There are electric on-demand water heaters, but you know they are even peakier than stoves. They require you know three or four separate thirty amp breakers, all with dedicated copper runs. It's cost prohibitive. So if we think about, I mean, this is an equity issue. If we think about all these houses, they don't have a viable way to get off gas for their water heating because just they don't have room for a storage tank. So a battery embedded on-demand water heater then, I would think intuitively that the peak demand on an on-demand water heater might even be higher than the peak demand from a stove or is that or is that wrong? Like, is a is a on demand water heater a more challenging load than a stove? Or are they comparable? It is actually more challenging. Generally, I mean these these are generalities. There'll be differences, obviously. Right. But for comparable households, yeah, the peak power running to an on demand water heater is exceptionally high. Um, this can be in the like twenty or thirty kilowatt range, whereas a, an induction range it might usually be around ten kilowatts peak. But this is still something you think a battery can handle? Yeah, specifically, a battery is a good choice for it because a small amount of battery can really yield a lot of savings because it's these peak times that aren't really that long. Right. Why not, you know, Wyatt raised this earlier, why not batteries embedded in your wall behind your drywall attached to your outlet such that anything you plug in the outlet, right, enjoys these benefits? I've seen some proposals for that type of work. I think it's compelling as, as, uh, as innovations go. I think there's a lot of questions around fire safety and code that have to be addressed for that to really get off the runway. I, I hesitate to strongly endorse that approach, but I, <laughs> I think thinking creatively about, you know, if you can make that installation happen in a factory where they're doing modular type walls, maybe you mm. can do a much better job with all the safety and, and make sure that it's, uh, you know, not, not going to cause any problems um, versus, you know, somebody doing a, a custom job on their own home. You know, it, you might be more concerned embedding that in the wall. We actually did some design studies on this originally. Fire code is a huge, huge barrier to this. Um, talk oh. to people who've been through that process and they said, no, no way in hell are you going to get that through. <laughs> um, the other point is that this kind of general purpose battery sitting next to an appliance is compelling. 
But particularly for high power appliances, there's a lot of cost that goes into the power conversion and conditioning needed to go in and out of the battery. And in the case of a lot of these appliances, when you integrate directly with them, you can simply skip a lot of those steps because you know exactly what you're going to be driving. You don't need to do as much voltage conversion. You don't need to do as much inversion. So you save a bunch on cost there and you save a bunch on efficiency because you know, there's a critical efficiency threshold below which it's really not beneficial to store away energy. It's round-trip efficiencies of batteries. You know, DC to DC is something like 90%. But if you look at our national fleet of grid-connected batteries, it's more like 80% after it includes all of those other power conversion losses. Got it. Um, Other Lab, if I'm not mistaken, did some modeling trying to assess... What is the sort of decarbonization potential of easy appliances? I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try to make that happen. These ESE appliances. Tell us about that. Like, what what are we talking about when we look at the big? If we could, you know, spread this across the nation, what could we get? The overall potential of energy storage equipped appliances. Correct. Like, how much decarbonization could we get out of them if we made them, uh, you know, ubiquitous? Yeah. So I did an analysis of this and the emissions reductions come in kind of three buckets that are when you when you run the numbers on it, they're roughly equal in size, roughly. The first is direct combustion. So we're not burning gas anymore in our stoves and our water heaters, etc. So there's a savings there. The second bucket is in methane leaks, um, which this is another thing where the more we learn about this, the worse we find out it is. And because methane is so potent, as you know, the news cycle is starting to remind us more and more, which is good, little leaks are big problems from a climate perspective. And so um, avoiding the leaks of the methane supply chain and of the appliances themselves is another huge bucket. And then finally, there's the what I call the marginal grid emissions or the avoided emissions of the electricity sector that comes from having this additional battery storage uh, supporting it. And when we add all that up, we find that in the U.S., it's approximately 330 million metric tons per year of technical potential for for energy storage equipped appliances. What are some sort of like consumer pain points here that we could concentrate on? I don't know if we've covered it thoroughly enough, but I do feel like it's not talked about enough in general is is this constraint around panel upgrades and... That I think, you know, you have an idea in your head of, of what something might cost you in terms of the end use, but then the infrastructure needed just to you know, supply power to that end use is often not part of the equation. And then when you find out, oh, by the way, it's going to take months and months of permitting and before we can get an electrician to come out and, you, you know, your furnace kicked in the middle of the winter. You know, a lot of people are not going to wait around for that to happen, even if they can afford it. And a lot of people are going to have trouble affording that, that upgrade. Just to emphasize what you just said, because I, me- I meant to mention this earlier, is it's, it's, w- it's well known that people tend to be replacing appliances under stress <laughs> because their appliance died. And if you have a dead water heater or a dead stove, you know, the idea of waiting several weeks for a panel upgrade is even more of a pain in the ass. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a big one. And I think a lot of the sort of studies around electrification challenge, if you will, just kind of sweep that under the rug sometimes as like, and then they'll also just upgrade the panel at the same time. <laughs> and that'll just be, it'll just, they'll just tack on, you know, another five grand and, and maybe it'll be five grand. Some places it's less than that. And some places it's a lot more than that, especially if you need new service. But then there's also that time factor of like, not in the middle of the winter, they won't. Yeah. And it's honestly, the more I have sort of studied and thought about and read about any sort of upgrade or difference or thing to do in the household that you rely on a consumer to do, you just have to dial back your expectations for what they will do. <laughs> yeah. They they don't want to do anything. They will default yeah. almost always to the easiest default choice, even if you're just asking them to like make a phone call or just like one extra step. Yeah you lose enormous <laughs> swaths. Like it's absolutely got to be as easy as possible. Yeah. So I have a, a separate project, uh, not not part of the other lab work, but a separate project with a couple of our national labs, NREL and Lawrence Berkeley Lab. 
And uh, it's got a number of, of partners as well. Uh, and, and the whole point of that project is really to get our arms around this upgrade question of what I think of as the gray area, right? Because there's certain homes that, yes, no matter how you cut it, they're going to have to upgrade right. uh, and there's no way around it. There's some homes that don't need an upgrade that have plenty of capacity and that might be like newer construction or newer renovations. And then there's people who might be somewhere in the middle there. And I, my sense is really that that gray area in the middle is not very well defined from the, the current uh, kind of analysis landscape that's out there. There's been, uh, you know, a couple studies that try to quantify this and um, I think we can do a better job and that's what we're doing right now. So we, we have this project that I mentioned with a number of components, part of that's analysis, uh, part of it's looking at even, you know, future grid mix and, and maybe making uh, recommendations for national electric code revisions to, to try to make some of these transitions more viable. And then also there's like a lot of really interesting ideas around load management, especially digital load management that, again, might not be code compliant in, in all places, but have like a lot of potential from a technical standpoint to make sure that, you know, that your dryer and your EV are not charging at the same time, right? So you you run into a situation where you, you can come up with a lot of creative ideas around, you know, avoiding those upgrades. And then there's kind of what's going to be permissible from a code standpoint. What are, you know, uh, consumers actually going to want? What are they going to, as you say, what are they going to put up with or do to, to make the upgrade possible? So that's the big one for me. I'm sure there's a bunch of others we could we could talk about. Sam, what, what, what do you go? You've um, been immersed in electrifications. I'm sure you've heard every what about that there is uh-huh. what are what are some other others on your list well there's the classic but will the grid handle it and there's a lot of precedent here that we can lean on but also we're going to have to do things like distribute storage in order to avoid all of the upgrades that might otherwise be necessary you know the one i tell folks a lot is between 1950 and 1970 we quadrupled the amount of delivered electricity in the us And that was largely through consumer education campaigns. That was, you know, Ronald Reagan hosting a show sponsored by GE and Westinghouse talking about all his electric appliances (laughs) in his house. And we don't even need to do that much. We need to, you know, between two, we need to deliver two and three times the amount of electricity we do today in our electrified future. And we need to do it in 20 years. So we've already done more than what we need to do. So that's one we can lean on. But not to make it sound trivial, it's going to require a massive build out, particularly of transmission. And we need to rely on things like distributed batteries to avoid all the uh, upgrades to the distribution network that we might otherwise have to do. Right. And what about, I bet you've heard, um, you know, where I live, grid mix is mostly coal anyway. So how is this helping decarbonization? I'm sure you've heard that one. Oh, definitely. And, you know, the answer there is these electric appliances are inherently efficient. And so in most cases, even if you're exclusively powered on coal, uh, your EV, you know, contributes less than your gasoline powered car, your heat pump contributes less than your gas furnace. Um, I think I'm probably preaching to the choir here, though. (laughs) Yes. One of my favorite uh, uh, statistics that your friend Saul uh, uses all the time is just the efficiency gains of switching from fossil fueled to electric appliances and cars and everything else that almost cuts in half the amount of raw energy that you need to put into the economy, which is wild. That is just wild, which means you can either do 50% more stuff for the same amount of energy, right? (laughs) Or you can dramatically cut the amount of energy necessary, which is why I think those sort of like charts of like total energy, um, you know, that's gone to renewables are somewhat misleading. You're just not going to need as much energy. Exactly. Yeah. Completely misleading. You know, a couple percent of all of our energy needs are spent just moving around natural gas and pipelines. Right. You know, right. it's the mining, refining and transportation of fossil fuels are responsible for a massive amount of our energy expenditures as a nation. Right. You don't have to electrify that. It just goes away. It's also just a very sort of defeatist attitude to say, well, my electricity is coming from coal, so I'm not going to get fossil fuels out of my home. It's like, well, do you think it's always going to be coming from coal forever? <laughs> right. Like it, it, it kind of suggests that it, it'll always be that way. And uh, I think we know that's not the case. Right. Grids everywhere are improving. And the way I try to put it is that like if you have an EV, right, if you buy a gas car, it's basically the same dirty 
for its lifetime, right? It is a set amount of emissions uh, per mile. But the EV you buy, because the grid is getting cleaner and cleaner, your EV is getting cleaner and cleaner every day you have it. You don't have to do anything. It just is magically getting cleaner all the time. Same for any electric appliance. Yeah, it's an appreciating asset. (laughs) But as you rightfully point out, to get consumers to do stuff, we got to give them multiple reasons. So the climate reason is a great one. The saving money reason is a great one. But I think we also just need to deliver better experiences. And luckily, electric appliances Mm -hmm. tend to do that. You know, I just put heat pumps in my parents' house where I'm currently visiting. And previously, we'd burned wood to keep the house warm my whole life. And this house is more comfortable than it's ever been in my entire life. And (laughs) especially with my aging parents not having to chop and haul firewood, it's the benefits are huge. (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm curious, like you're... This thing is coming out onto the market. For you, it's a big shift, I would think, from being a sort of data analytical nerd to being a consumer-facing, consumer-interacting product company, a company with products, right? So I, I got I to gotta tell you, David, I actually met Sam for the first time uh, in a, a program at Cyclotron Road called the Lab Embedded Entrepreneurship Program. So he's, <laughs> he's actually got a, all kinds of hidden talents for, for this stuff. But Sam, you should speak to that. Well, I, I appreciate that, Wyatt. Yeah, I, I um, you know, my background is in the technology, but I've always had a passion about the energy data stuff. And a lot of that goes back to being friends with Saul and geeking out on data sets together. But, you know, additionally, there's just, you know, hire a great staff to do this. So I'm, I'm just so excited about the, the team we're building. We, you know, we've got folks for, uh, who have background building kind of mass mobilization campaigns, uh, you know. So I, I think there's really exciting stuff that's going to happen. And I'm thrilled that, I, you know, we have a great team to do it. Well, the purpose of that question, and this will be, I, uh, we can wrap up with this question, which was just, you know, we've discussed benefits in actual cooking, right? Like you can get a surge, you can get really fast, tightly controlled surges of energy. So you can do your wok cooking with your mysterious accessory. You can (laughs) boil water super fast, faster than anything else. There's the cooking benefits. There's the resilience benefits, meaning if power goes out, you still can run your stove and potentially your refrigerator and other stuff. There's the sort of money-saving benefits, avoiding the panel upgrade, maybe even getting a little extra income if you can hook up with a, you know, time of use or, or, or time shifting, you know, if your utilities smart enough to do that stuff. Behind all that, there's the climate benefit. My question is just, if I opened, uh, you know, a browser window in a year and saw an ad for Channing Street Copper Stove, what is your top line message to consumers? Which of all those benefits are you centering and sort of hooking your hopes on in terms of just sales? You know, I think like this is one of the reasons I like calling these things energy storage equipped, ESE appliances. This is just, I want to hang this on, this being a new class of appliance that delivers just a large number of benefits that are incomparable to existing appliance offerings. So you've got um, the climate benefits, the resilience benefits, the better performance. So I'm doing a good job not answering the question, I think. Yes, if you have an advertisement with a bullet with a bullet pointed <laughs> list, I don't think it's gonna it's gonna sell very well. You gotta what's the sizzle here? The so sizzle. Will, you know, this is why we have targeted ads, but <laughs> I will say the uh, in our customer research uh, the things that really motivate people are the resilience aspects. Huh. Um, and so being able to be prepared for what comes is a, is a really strong motivator for people. Um, and it cuts across, you know, party lines, it cuts across affiliations in a, in a, in a real way. So if you're going to force me to pick one, I might have to pick that one, but in truth, it's the portfolio. <laughs> Especially in California where you're starting there's a lot of blackouts. <laughs> the resilience thing is big in California. Yeah, PG&E shuts off my power, you know, once every couple of weeks. So, <laughs> and, and actually, I, as, as usual, uh, I lied about the final question. This is the final question. When are you? Um, you're starting out in the Bay Area, as I understand it, just selling stoves in the Bay Area. Do we know or have any idea when the rest of California or the rest of the country uh, might have access? 
Yeah. So we did a pre-order. We sold it out quickly. And we're, you know, we, we're going to deliver on that pre-order. And as you said, that's just in the Bay Area. And that's to make sure that we can provide really excellent support for the folks that chose to support us early. And then I would say, I, I don't want to be bound by this, but I would say within 2023, we'll be uh, in a broader market. Interesting. Interesting. Well, this is uh, super fascinating. It's just one of those little areas of electrification where it's like a you peek through the keyhole, you're like, ooh, there's like a whole world of interesting questions in there. <laughs> so thank you guys for coming on. And maybe, uh, you, you know, we can reconvene in a year or two and see if easy appliances, uh, see if the, our phrase has caught on and uh, see how far they've spread. <laughs> well, thanks so much for the interview, David. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.